Well, good morning. I want to welcome you. My name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church. We are in week nine of our series on the Ten Commandments. So would you open up your Bibles with me to the book of Exodus, second book of the Bible, chapter 20, and we're going to be in verse 16 today. Uh, The Ten Commandments are ten laws that God designed specifically for the nation of Israel. This new nation is about to launch, and this would be the legal code that is the foundation for everything that they would know. And in fact, what we find here is that this is more than just a legal code for this new nation. In fact, what we see here is that God's heart and values are just all over the page. I think we're tempted to look at the Ten Commandments like just a simple list of don'ts, um, but if you just think and dig a little bit, there is something beautiful and valuable behind every single one of them. So we're on number nine, Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, it says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So let's, let's try something. Let's summarize this commandment in one word. I'm going to begin a sentence. I want you to finish it with one word. You shall not lie, right? And this is the way probably we have consolidated this verse, talked to our children. If a stranger come out, came off the street and said to you, what is the ninth commandment? You would probably have to count out loud in your head first, but then you'd remember it's about something with false witness, and you would say, basically, this says, do not lie. But does it? <laughs> is there more? Have we oversimplified? I think so. In fact, I think if you just look at the words... There's actually something really interesting and meaningful and very beautiful behind this. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to answer three questions. Number one, what specifically is Yahweh forbidding? Number two, we're going to answer the question, what value is God upholding through this legislation? And then number three, we're going to get to the so what. What does this practically mean? All right, number one, what is Yahweh forbidding specifically? Let's look at the text again. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So most literally, to bear false witness means to testify with deceptive testimony. To testify with deceptive testimony. That's a little bit different of a nuance than just the flat out do not lie, right? That there is a context where you are giving a testimony, And where you are going to testify, and I want you to notice that there is a victim in this, and the victim is your neighbor. So in America, your neighbor is the person who lives maybe behind you, to your left, to your right, on your street, something of the sorts. And in the Bible, the word neighbor has a much bigger like meaning to it. And here's a basic understanding of who your neighbor is biblically. Your neighbor is the person you interface with, whoever they might be, wherever you're at. If you're, if you're with them or there's some dynamic where you have a relationship with them, even if it's just in passing, that person very quickly becomes, biblically speaking, your neighbor. So now here's what I want you to imagine with me. I want you to imagine with me there is a world where there is no electricity that is powering any of your gadgets. It's a world where there are no cameras, there's no surveillance, There's no DNA testing. There's no smartphones monitoring your every single move, right? No Google Maps tracking you everywhere. By the way, have you discovered 
deep down in the recesses of your phone, what Google does behind that, they will tell you every location you have been for the last 10 years. Most people don't know it's there. You can go back to a specific date, like May 15th, 2015, it will show you exactly where you are. If you haven't turned it off, it's on. Now, go look at it after the service, okay? Let's make it deal, okay? No Alexa, listening to your every word and then monetizing you and your family and your desires. Oh, it's interesting. We talked about tennis rackets. Now it's up all over my Facebook, right? None of this. It's an, it's an analog world. Now, imagine you commit a crime, theft. How... Do we prove this beyond a shadow of a doubt? How do we execute justice with absolute certainty? Now, in a moment of weakness, I want you to imagine uh, the authorities are doing an investigation and they're getting close to you. So in a moment of weakness, here's what you do. You come forward as a witness and you testify I saw my neighbor coming out of that house. So what do the authorities do? The authorities, they get off your trail. They go onto your neighbor's trail. They confront your neighbor. And the neighbor says, of course, uh, false. I'm completely innocent. But now your neighbor knows, doesn't he? Your neighbor knows either you're the guilty party or you're protecting somebody else who is. Now there's a relational break. How do you think that relationship's going to be, by the way, from here on out? Pretty much toast. Now you're the authorities. Put yourself in their shoes. How do we discern with confidence that the people we not just prosecute but convict are indeed guilty? How do we be out of a shadow of a doubt know that we know that we know? And I, I want you to just imagine this. The reality of false witnesses can absolutely tear down not just friendships, not just a community, but unchecked false witnesses can, can tear down an entire nation. I mean, the nation of Israel, as we've talked about, this is the first time a nation like this has ever been built where everyone is free, where there is justice for all. Whether you're rich, whether you're poor, it doesn't matter. No nation in the history of the world has ever structured itself the way the nation of Israel is being structured now. If you work hard, you move up. If you're lazy, you stay where you're at. If you're hungry, there's always food for you to eat because the edges of their fields are always unharvested for the poor so that they can preserve their dignity. Freedom for all, low taxation, small government, like it's your dream world. Now turn with me to Exodus chapter 23, just three chapters forward, because here's what happens. Um, of course, the Ten Commandments say, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. And then the human heart can find any way to justify any sin, can it not? Like when you're in the thick of it and you're guilty and you know you're guilty and you're about to get caught, like isn't there something inside of you that justifies scapegoating somebody else? And it's crazy what happens in the brain that somehow self-preservation, self-protection puts us in this really broken place where we are willing to ruin someone else to protect ourselves. Exodus chapter 23, it gives actually four um, categories. We're going to be in verses um, 1 through 3 and then verse 9. But the whole section of 1 through 9 basically gives you, here's all the different ways you might be tempted to bear false witness. Verse 1 starts off and says, you shall not bear a false report. And so who bears false reports but false witnesses? So here's the first category. Don't be the second false witness. It's bad enough to be the first. Don't be the second. He says this in verse one. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious 
witness. Now, one of my favorite things about Old Testament law is that in order to convict, it required at least one, if not two, witnesses to this thing other than the initial witnesses. You need, to be, you need to corroborate something. So you can't just have somebody stand up and say, I saw the man do it. You need one or two other people to come alongside and validate. In fact, by the time we get to the New Testament, this becomes a very important principle for New Testament spiritual leaders called elders. Because our responsibility is to not entertain accusations or at least prosecute them until there is a second or third witness. Why? Because God is very smart. He knows the schemes of the devil. And if there aren't checks and balances in this, do you know how many spiritual leaders would be unnecessarily ruined by the ill motives of the evil one using people to just raise up false accusations? Now, I'll be honest. I don't know what's true or false on the news, but I know that the moment you get in the political light, accusations, dark accusations rise up out of nowhere and there's no way to validate it. Republican or Democrat or independent doesn't even matter. We don't know what to think about anybody because we have a witness and how easy is it now in the political realm to find two or three false witnesses? And so the entire sense of justice is kind of pulled out from underneath us. And we're just sitting here as common people trying to figure out what is true and what is real. And this is some of the implications of what happens when you shall not bear false witness is not applied thoroughly throughout an entire nation, especially its upper leadership. But he says, don't be the second false witness because it's bad enough if there's one person, but but what happens when another person rises up and corroborates an initial false witness? Years ago, um, I was working with an elder board and there was an accusation against uh, an elder, a pastor that I knew, and I thought highly of the man. But um, when an accusation came forward, there are obviously and understandably concerns. Well, then a second accusation came forward corroborating the first person's accusation. And so what we did is we investigated, we dug deeply into this because we wanted to make sure that there was no hint of truth or whatever was true came out of this and the right things happened. We wanted truth, we wanted honesty, and so we dug. And then in the process of questioning, I want you to catch what happened. The initial accuser admitted to lying. And then... The second accuser, when asked, said, I actually didn't see it, but I never believed that my friend would lie. And because I know him as a truth teller, I defended him. Meanwhile, here's this pastor. And because you required two or three witnesses and then the due diligence of a spiritual leadership team, like how much has been protected because of this simple rule? Have you ever had somebody slander you, gossip you, and you had no opportunity for defense? Some of you in this room, you have been ruined. You've been ruined personally because the checks and balances, the biblical protocols laid out did not happen the way they were supposed to. This is an incredibly painful and excruciating law to break when you are the neighbor, when you are the victim. But God's nation was supposed to be different. God's people are supposed to be different. We don't just listen to every random accusation. In fact, we test them and then we say, find us a witness so we can validate. Because if every single person who made an accusation against leaders, business offices, managers, business owners, spiritual leaders was taken seriously, anybody could get anything they want just by the threat of an accusation. 
Now, the hard part is we live in a time where sometimes there are witnesses and those are not taken seriously, which is a different kind of evil. And we're going to talk about that towards the end of the message. Now, back to Exodus 23. Here's the second warning. Don't go with the crowd without evidence. Here's what happens in verse two. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. So there is a, a psychological impulse in all of us, by the way, to believe the following statement. They can't all be wrong, can they? I mean, that's a lot of people to be wrong. So here's what we find. We'll start with history and then we'll go to the Bible. In history, what would you say the track record is of all the crowds being right or wrong? Right? Not great. In scripture, it's, it's almost all the time, whenever a crowd gathers round with an accusation uh, it's actually almost never accurate because here's simply what happens. It takes one or two false witnesses with an agenda to rile up an entire crowd. And then the onlookers to the crowd say, well, they can't all be wrong. And so here's what Yahweh says. There are going to be moments where there are malicious people and you do have two false witnesses. And as soon as they rile up the crowd, be aware. Because when the crowd is riled up, something's off. Something's off. Here's an example, Jesus. In fact, what the chief priests and the spiritual leaders did is they hunted down false witnesses. They had a hard time finding them and they finally got two people. And at the end of the day, Jesus was murdered on the basis of false witnesses from the spiritual leaders. They intentionally broke the ninth commandment in order to kill Jesus. We think about Stephen, the, one of the first deacons in the book of Acts, chapter six, seven, and eight. And what happens is that the spiritual leaders raised up false witnesses to lie about him. And then all of the crowds gathered together and basically stoned him to death because of the energy around the crowd and the false witnesses. Go back to Jesus, there's these false witnesses and the crowds shouted, release Barabbas and, and kill innocent Jesus. And probably there's a bunch of people like you and me who just kind of showed up and said, well, they must know something I don't know. They can't all be wrong. And here's what we find throughout history. Whenever the crowd moves loudly for the condemnation and damnation of another person, slow down. There's probably something going on because crowds rarely execute justice. They execute rage or agendas of other people. Here's a third warning. Don't let your compassion for the poor or your hatred for the rich drive you. Look, look what he says. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. So people are partial to the poor for many reasons, but I'll give you the two biggest reasons you may be tempted to bear false witness in behalf of a poor person. Number one is compassion. Compassion is a wonderful thing, isn't it? And so some people out of compassion find themselves not representing something accurately. Let me tell you the Achilles heel of compassion. It is rarely objective. It's a beautiful trait, but it isn't the driver of justice in a court of law. Now, many other people advocate and take the side of the poor because they hate the rich because they are usually pretty jealous at the core at the end of the day. And hatred, anger, 
rarely are an honorable trait. Sometimes they are. Ephesians says, be angry and don't sin. It's possible. But have you ever found hatred or anger to be objective? I haven't. I am my least objective when I'm my most emotional, whether it's compassion or anger. But these are not the kind of things that drive the law, nor should they drive us to bear false witness, even subtly, just to protect another person. Here's the fourth one. Don't throw the helpless under the bus. Here's what happens in verse nine. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And what they're just recognizing is that the foreigner, the one who doesn't speak your language, know your culture, know your laws, you don't know them personally, they are the easiest to scapegoat. Did you do something wrong? Are people coming after you? Well, find a foreigner, find a sojourner and exploit them because after all, they're not your people. You don't know them. They don't know you. They don't even understand how to defend themselves. And so it's the path of least resistance for the one protecting themselves and it's evil. So these are just a few of the common ways that in the Old Testament, they would bear false witness. So I want to, I want to come back to the very beginning. We use the word do not lie, right? This commandment is not do not lie. And we'll just say 99% of the time is lying bad. And the answer would be, yes, it is. But there are actually a handful of occasions in the Old Testament where lying is applauded. Now, I, moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, you got to be careful when you say this stuff around kids because a kid's heart wants to justify deception, does it not? So let me give you a couple examples and then we'll watch this play out. Pharaoh asked the midwives to kill the Jewish children when they were born and they deceived, they lied, they protected the children and God blessed them and applauded them. Moses' parents, they deceived Pharaoh, they broke the law, they hid Moses for months and the book of Hebrews, the hall of faith, looks at them and says, they honored God. I'll give you another example. Rahab uh, hid the Jewish spies and then lied about their whereabouts, uh, misled um, the people hunting them down and protected their lives. And God blessed her, honored her for the deception and the lie. If God were to just say, do not lie, right? That probably wouldn't be the best commandment because there are circumstances where God actually applauds that. But what did all of these moments of deception have in common? They were not for self-protection. They were not for self-promotion, but they were for the protection of the life of innocence. So there's been a multi-year debate on our staff. And um, I'll just lead with this. I'm right, and I'll tell you why. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. I may, I may try to woo you to my position, but, um, but here, here's the question. If you were hiding Jews in your attic during the Holocaust and Nazi soldiers came to your door and asked you for the whereabouts of any Jews, would you lie and tell them you don't know or would you tell the truth and say they're up in my attic? I'm going to put all my cards on the table. I would lie, 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 lie. And I think I'd be in good company because I think I'd be in good company with the midwives. I'd be in good company with Moses' mom and dad. I'd be in good company with Rahab. Why? Because it's not out of self-protection or self-preservation or self-promotion, but out of the protection of innocent lives. Those circumstances happen. They're few and far between. 99.9% .9 of the time, the lying and the deception that you and I commit is going to be sinful. Can I get an amen on that one? 
But this is why the commandment is not just do not lie. It's about bearing false witness against a neighbor. It's a severe thing. Now, I have one just personal request of you. If I'm ever being hunted down for my religion and you are going to turn me in, tell me so that I can go to someone else's attic. Is that fair? Thank you. And I will do the same for you. But here's what I would do for you. I would lie, 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 even at the cost of my life to protect, to protect the innocent life. All right, question number two. What value is God upholding? What, what is of such importance to God that he would take the, one of the top 10 most important commandments to protect it? And I think the answer might surprise you. In our preaching prep, we spent quite a bit of time trying to nail down what is the thing that God is trying to protect? What is the value? And let me, let me share with you what this value is. Protection of another's reputation. Behind bearing false witness, what God is upholding is protection of another's reputation. I think it's, it's hard for a lot of younger Americans especially to understand what comes with a name. But the older you are, you understand that in a name is honor. You understand that to bear my name and to represent my name, I want it to be a name that is spoken well of. Well, you go to the ancient Near East and a man or a woman's name is one of the most important and valuable assets they have. In fact, one of the most dishonorable things that you could do for another person is to slander them, gossip about them, and lessen the value of their name in the presence of other people. Because you spend your entire life trying to be honorable and dignified and live a life that glorifies God. And then one person raises up a false accusation and the entire community now has a shadow of doubt that is cast over you. And so God says, this is one of the most evil things. If murder can take a man's life, bearing false witness can take what he's worked for his entire life, his good name. And then we give this good name to our children and say, bear this proudly, make it better in the ways that I didn't glorify God. And again, as, as you're younger, you don't totally understand it until you begin to build a name for yourself, which is a good thing. And once your name begins to have good things associated with it, you don't want to give the power to one false witness to blow up your reputation, your ability to have a good reputation before non-Christians, before your family, in front of your kids. You take one false accusation to a man or a woman and their kids will have a hard time looking at them the same way. I mean, this is a sacred thing, the way we speak of other people and protect their reputation. The New Testament has much to say about this. You just think about how many times it references gossip and slander. These are very practical ways we violate this commandment or this value when we gossip or slander, especially if we cannot evidence or prove it. In Matthew 15, 19, I want you to just hear this list. Jesus is pretty clearly referencing the Ten Commandments. And he says this, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft. And I, and I want you to hear these last two words that he puts into this category of evil, false witness and slander. Like these, these are things that, that Yahweh wants eradicated from the people of God. 
And yet if I were to ask everyone in this room, have you spoken ill of another person out of turn? Every one of us would raise our hand. If I were to ask the question, have you borne false witness about someone else? If, if you went back far enough, I bet most of us could find a time where we were going to get in trouble and we scapegoated somebody else and kind of hoped maybe they would never find out about it. Let's go to some so what's. Here's number one. We discern with God's word when to cover sin and when to expose sin. Now, I'm you. I've got a whole bunch of questions. For example, what do I do if I'm in like a really corrupt leadership environment? What do I do if my boss or my manager is just like, they're just evil and they're getting away with it? And I want to attempt to answer that in a moment. Let's start with this idea of exposing sin. When is it okay as a Christian to shine light on another person's sin? When is it okay to publish this? And if so, how do I go about this? Now, I want to invite you all to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, because knowing this text, I think is one of the most practical texts that every believer in Jesus needs to not just know, but master. Because if you get this text, it gives you the foundation to deal with about 95% of the sinful, uh, sinful experiences of other people that you're going to encounter. Like this is going to be the guide for you. This is how to deal with things biblically. All right, I'm going to read it to you and then we're going to draw out some highlights as we go. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 is where we'll start. If your brother sins against you, that's the context. You, and I want you to catch what's implied here. You're a witness to this thing. This isn't just something they did over there. You actually understand what happened here. And the idea is not that they hurt your feelings, but that there's an actual sin issue here. Now, here's what you do. You go and you tell him his fault between you and him. What's that word that comes next? Alone. Don't you love how it goes out of its way to say, you are not allowed to expose or to publish sin until you have at least first and talk to the person directly about it alone. Why? Because you have no idea why they did what they did, what happened, or the circumstances around it. And quite frankly, in this moment, it's no one's business but the two of you. 95% of circumstances, that's just a made-up stat, but it feels about right, 95% of circumstances, this is going to apply to, maybe even more. So you go to them alone. And if he listens to you, you've came to your brother. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody that was going to be hard and you went and you talked to them and they were like, you're right. You are absolutely right. I was wrong. And it's a beautiful moment. And doesn't your trust and love for each other just go through the roof in that moment? Like, yes, when somebody apologizes and owns it, I'm like, I just think you're amazing. I just love when people own stuff. My respect for them is just so high. But verse 16 gives us another scenario. What if he doesn't listen? If he doesn't listen, you take one or two others along with you. Now, it is assumed that you as a believer in Jesus Christ are wise and that the people you're going to bring into this scenario are also wise. Now, I love this. You can bring one or two. I appreciate the limits. And what is God trying to protect here? He's trying to protect the unnecessary exposure of sin because when you expose sin too much, it makes repentance so much more difficult for the person who's caught. 
So here's what we do. We take one or two, and here's a good way to kind of know whether one or two is appropriate. If it's something smaller and manageable and you have confidence in their humility, you take one. If it's something a little bit bigger and you don't know how it's going to go, take two. If you don't know what to do, two is fine as long as you are wise and you are discerning. And your goal in bringing two is not primarily to protect yourself, but so that this person has the greatest opportunity for repentance. If, verse 17, he refuses to listen to them, now we have not just the accuser, okay? Uh, Actually, go back to verse 16, I'm sorry. It says that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, what I love about this is that when somebody makes an accusation, they can be wrong, can they not? So you bring in the witnesses, and what the witnesses are doing is not just validating the sin, but also validating that the accuser is correct. So it's interesting, when you bring in witnesses, you're not just bringing in witnesses against that person. Everybody is being tested by the witnesses, the accused and the accuser, which is the value of the witnesses. Now we get to verse 17. If this person won't listen to you, won't listen to two or three people validating that what is going on is real and true, then here's what it says next. You tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. With the launch of uh, the church uh, in the book of Acts and the establishment of elders, um, typically what we would just encourage people to do is bring it to the elders and let them figure out how to tell the church. All of this is called church discipline. Now, let me tell you um, what I would not do as an elder here at the Village Church. If you were guilty of sin and you weren't repentant and somebody addresses you and you're still not repentant and then another person addresses you and you're still not repentant and then by the time I get there, right, we're with the elders now and, and here's what I'm not going to do if you're unrepentant. I'm not going to stand up on a Sunday morning and publish your sin here. Why? Because there's people watching on a camera because many of you don't go to this church. Some of you are not believers. What we're going to do is we're going to call a special congregational meeting for members only and we're going to deal with this together and in private so that we do not unnecessarily ruin the person beyond what is appropriate. Our objective is to create the most optimal circumstance for repentance. That's what we want. So every part of the process is about making sure we do due diligence and we give every opportunity for this person to repent with the least amount of public shame. Now, I can, I can hear your questions. Here's my big one. What do I do if the people in power persist in sin? All of this assumes, by the time it gets to the elder board, that the people in power are going to do the right thing. But what do you do when the people in power don't expose biblically but cover up? Uh, I'll give you just four Four things, and then we're going to look at what this means with churches, parachurches, and then secular businesses. For churches, number one, expect wolves. We don't say this because we're cynical. Uh, We expect wolves because the Bible tells us to expect wolves. In the book of Acts chapter 20, Paul's sitting down with the Ephesian elders, and he says, wolves are going to rise up, not just around you, but even from within. 
I talked to a pastor many years ago. He's still a good friend. And I asked him, what's your greatest regret in ministry? And he's, late, he's in his late 60s now. And he says, very simply, without thinking, my greatest regret in ministry is not paying close enough attention to my elders. Who could become elders? And having known his story, I completely understood that regret. As the elders go, so goes the entire church. Expect wolves, number one. Number two, and I, 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 at least in the American context, we have a legal system, an HR system, that actually does protect a number of things. There are some things that happen inside the confines of a church we are legally required to report. So follow the law until the law tells you to disobey the word of God. That, that in and of itself protects so many things. Uh, number three, follow biblical patterns. Open up the word of God and see if there are any experiences that apply to this or principles. And then here's a fourth one, and you're going to find this is a very just common theme. Before you do anything against a group of leaders that are unrepentant, get biblical wisdom immediately. So you may want me to script out your response at that point. And every single issue with a broken leadership team looks different. So for me to give a script would be really unwise. What I can tell you is find a very wise spiritual leader or pastor outside of the organization who can help you navigate this with skill in a way that brings God glory. All right, what about parachurches? If you don't know what a parachurch is, a parachurch is a Christian organization that supports the local church. So that would be like Campus Crusade for Christ or Crew. That would be like the Navigators or Awana. These are parachurch organizations. They're not churches, but they exist to support the work of the church and the building of Jesus' kingdom. Here's the first principle. Expect wolves. <laughs> expect that there will be leaders with ulterior motives that are not great. Why? Not because parachurch organizations are falling left and right. Some are, but the vast majority are not. It may feel like all of them are when you read the news. It's actually a small percentage. Most leaders are really good men and women doing an incredible job. But expect wolves. Why? Satan is so smart. He knows that if he can raise up a public accusation against an organization, a leader, or a culture uncorroborated in this context, everybody will cast out, even if it's true or not. And so we have to figure out how do we discern? How do we just not go with the masses? How do we not just blindly follow cancel culture? Because, well, if we don't, we'll be canceled. And so this is really challenging. But number one, expect Expect wolves. Number two, follow the law. Again, HR policies and mandated reporting, they are wonderful things here to protect us. And we follow the law until the law asks us to violate God's word. Number three, it's a Christian organization. Follow biblical patterns. Do you see a theme here? It's like one, two, three, four. By the way, the fourth one is going to be very simple. Get wise counsel before you go against an entire organization's leadership team and culture. It doesn't mean you shouldn't, but we need wise biblical counsel before I tell you something up front, lest you go and blow your whole life up and there was a wiser way to go about it and to get the repentance that we all really, really want. Well, what if I'm in a secular business? If you're in a business, expect, because everywhere you go, there are sinners, expect you're going to have management and owners and bosses that are not going to be great. Some of them may be downright abusive, Expect poor leadership. Expect sin anywhere you go. You don't hope for it. You don't want it. But when it happens, you're not just mind blown by it. And then what do we do? We follow the law. We follow biblical principles. 
And if we get to a point where we're up against an entire culture and leadership, we get wise biblical counsel so that we can figure out the right next step. I mean, the pattern is the same. Expect that things will be challenging with leaders. There will be wolves. There will be challenging leaders. Follow the law. Follow biblical patterns and get really good advice. If you do those four things, almost every circumstance you can be protected, but then there are the ones where the people just get away with it. Do they not? And I'm telling you that our souls are uniquely made to be crushed when spiritual leaders abuse their position and their power and let us down and they get away with it. It's a really difficult, unique pain. And the Lord knows, I'm telling you, nobody in this world knows what it's like to be scapegoated like Jesus Christ. There is no level of gaslighting or scapegoating that you have experienced that he has not personally experienced, understands, and he loves you. I I will say the day of judgment is coming. The day of judgment is the day where all things will be shown in the light, all cultures that are broken, every person who hid their sin bore false witness, scapegoated another person, every one of them will be made right. And it will be a day of incredible justice. All of the names that have been taken down and ruined, God will restore to you your good name and expose what is real and true in the world. There's another side of this coin of exposing, and there's this principle of covering. Now, I want to be clear, not covering up. A covering. It's a biblical word. It goes back to the book of Genesis chapter 9. So I think it's worth you looking there. As you turn there, I'll read to you 1 Peter 4.8. It says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love, love does something really interesting. It covers, not covers up, covers a multitude of sins. And this is terminology that is a throwback to Genesis 9. And here's what happens. Um, Moses gets, or not Moses, Noah uh, gets passed out drunk. And his son Ham finds him. And his son Ham finds him and then goes to his brothers and says something like, we don't know what, but we know it wasn't good. Check out dad. Dad's naked and he's wasted. And they are looking to expose him and bring greater shame on him. Well, the brothers say to Ham basically, yeah, no. Uh, So they leave him completely out of it. And then listen to what happens in verse 22. Ham saw the nakedness of his father, told his two brothers outside, verse 23, then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. They went out of their way to not even see it with their own eyes. Like if this was you, and you're, you're watching someone in their lowest moment. Don't you want to look? Isn't there a part of you that, that wants to look? But these brothers rose above every impulse. They backed in with a sheet together, covered dad so that nobody else could walk in and shame the leader of this household. They protected him. And it's interesting what happens is he wakes up and here's what happens. And he, re- he rebukes and he curses Ham for exposing him and not covering him. And the brothers who covered him and didn't even look, they are honored. So when do we cover? Not cover up. When do we cover? You cover when someone's caught. When someone's caught, it's excruciating, it's hard. And you need some time, but you cover. You keep this thing as small as humanly possible. 
And then the moment they repent, it stays covered. When repentance happens and restitution is made for what was made wrong, like this, is a, this stays small and you and I should never hear about it. Why? Because we value protecting the name of other people and not unnecessarily ruining someone's name over a mistake they made, especially when they're repentant. For a moment, think about the worst thing you've ever done as an adult. If you're, we'll just say over 16 years old, think about the worst thing you've ever done. Do you want it published? Would it tarnish your reputation? For sure. Does it define you? Not at all. What you do when you publish unnecessarily, you now give everyone permission to define them by this thing. You would never wish it upon yourself. And yet, aren't we so inclined when we're caught to gossip, slander, and scapegoat? It's like in the human heart. It is, in the, it is a, one of our impulses. All right, so what number two? As Christians, we practice extreme ownership. We are quick to own when we make mistakes. It's what we do. We are tempted to lie. Yes. We are tempted to deceive. Yes. We are extreme owners. We are not false witnesses. We do not put the blame somewhere else or on someone else. We take full responsibility for what we do. We practice extreme ownership. If you want to see how this plays itself out, (laughs) this is hilarious. Look no further than your children, right? How many times do your kids lie about their brother and sister only to deflect punishment? False witness is in the human condition. You don't have to teach people how to bear false witness. We are born as false witnesses. The moment we realize, I could just blame him or her. Like, this is all good. I, I, it's unbelievable how many times I find myself putting on my detective hat to figure out what is true, what is real, and what actually happened because someone in this room is lying. You sit down with a, a married couple who have a very broken marriage. Scapegoat, scapegoat, scapegoat. It's all them. It's all them. You listen to a husband or a wife outside of this context and, and it's all that person. No context for what you might have done or brought into the relationship. Look no further than a disgruntled employee to someone caught lying. I mean, if you really start thinking about it, you're going to find scapegoating everywhere, bearing false witness. What's heartbreaking is when you're the one scapegoated. Old Testament law had this really unique practice that I think began to make much more sense with Jesus. And on the Day of Atonement, what would happen is they would shed the blood of a whole bunch of animals for the forgiveness of sins, and, and they would take one goat, and the goat was called the, the scapegoat. And the high priest would go up to the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement, he would lay his hands on the scapegoat, and he would confess the sins of the nation on the scapegoat. Then they would take the scapegoat to the edges of the city and they would let it go into the wilderness. And guess what would happen to the scapegoat within like a couple hours? It was devoured and killed outside of the city. And it was this small picture that um, God was going to provide a scapegoat for them. One who would be taken out of the city, one whose 
would bear on themselves the sins of the people of God. And, and outside of the city, the scapegoat would be devoured to pieces. And then you start to begin to make sense of Jesus, who is our scapegoat, who was taken just outside of the city and the sins of the entire world were put on him. And this is great news for liars who bear false witness. And it's also great news for those of you who have been lied about. And if you are a scapegoater, first of all, your sins have been put on Jesus. And if you have never trusted in him, I want to tell you, even if you have caused irreparable permanent damage to another person, even Jesus' blood can forgive and cover that sin. And some of you as Christians, you, you did the unthinkable and you threw somebody else under the bus. There might even be people who don't have jobs today because of things that you have done and said or things you have not done and said. You may have put off blame and protected yourself in the process. And I have really good news for you. Even the blood of Christ can cover your deception. Now, when you place your faith in Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit. And here's what the Holy Spirit is going to do. He is going to convict you like crazy until you make restitution. And he's going to give you the courage to do it. There are four, few things more beautiful than somebody who repents by making right the wrongs they did to someone else. Some of you are on the receiving end of this. And when you place your faith in Jesus, you have a savior who understands what it means to be scapegoated. You have a savior who understands and he gives you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is an encourager and a healer. This side of heaven, your injustice may not be made right. I hope it is. All the systems put into place from government and spiritual leadership may fail you. But the Holy Spirit gives us hope that the day of judgment is coming and justice will happen and everything made wrong will be made right publicly. But it's also a two-edged sword. Everything you made wrong will also be made right publicly. And on that day, Jesus Christ, the scapegoat, will get all glory and honor for being just, for being the justifier. Everyone will receive the just punishment of their sins. And if they have trusted in Jesus, Jesus will be their substitute and their scapegoat. If they have rejected him, they will pay for their sins on their own. And here, here's just an opportunity before everyone else in this room. One of two people will pay for your sins. It will either be you or Jesus. May it be Jesus Christ who pays for your sins. I have great news for you. If you've never trusted in Jesus, believing in Christ is so easy. The notion that you have to be good enough to get to heaven, it's a flat out lie. It's not found in the Bible. Salvation is not for those who have been good enough. Forgiveness is not for those who accrue more good works than they did bad works. Forgiveness, reconciliation with God, salvation, redemption is found for anybody who is not good enough but trusts in the good work of Jesus Christ on their behalf, who believes in, in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I want to ask you this question. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins? If you, if you have never personally trusted in Jesus, may today be the first day that you place your faith in Jesus. Maybe today you are here and you have trusted in Christ. May the beauty and the grace of the cross of Christ, the shed blood of Jesus, may you just savor it today because all of your false witness and your deception has been forgiven and covered. And when you stand before Jesus, guilty as we might be, we will be declared innocent because of what Jesus did for us.
So we're going to partake of communion, and under your seat are communion cups. I want to invite you to pull that out. Um, on the top, there is a small wafer, and then under is the juice. And, and here's our simple protocol for communion. If you've trusted in Jesus, partake with us. Moms and dads, if your kids are in the room and they have trusted in Jesus and you're comfortable, they can partake with us. If you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus, but you are ready to place your faith in Jesus, I want to invite you to partake of communion as your first declaration that Jesus Christ is your savior and that you trust in him, his death and his resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins. If you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ, you're not ready to do that. Our ask is that you would let the cup pass. Um, You would not partake because this is a declaration of your faith. And if you're not there, we understand. I want to give one warning because as we talk about the Ten Commandments, um, for many, there is an unusual amount of guilt that you experience. And your temptation will be to not partake of communion because of some nonsensical lie you tell yourself that goes like this. I'm not worthy. Well, welcome to everybody in this room. The whole point of this is a reminder of your declaration of your unworthiness. So if you have placed your faith in Christ, I want to invite you to be reminded you are not worthy, but God has made you worthy of partaking and reminding what he has done for you. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a moment of silence. Um, and it's an opportunity for you to confess, to thank God. At the end of that silence, um, I'll read some scripture, and then we're going to partake together at that time. So let's have a time of silence.